I'm investigative journalist and former deputy sheriff, Scott Weinberg. And I'm Anna Segan Nicolazzi, former New York City homicide prosecutor. Each week on our podcast, Anatomy of Murder, we give you the inside perspective as we dissect the layers of each case, the victim, the crime, and the investigation. You'll hear from victims, loved ones, and those actually involved in the journeys to justice. Because the heart of each of these cases and this podcast is people. Listen to Anatomy of Murder now wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Brubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Episode 5, Retrace. At 2.30 in the afternoon on April 30, 1989, 17-year-old Jeff Pelly, his girlfriend Darla Emmons, and about a dozen other LaVille High School students were inside of Six Flags Great America theme park in Gurney, Illinois. What the teenagers didn't know was that officers from Gurney Police Department were close by, roaming every aisle of the amusement park's parking lot, trying to locate their cars. In particular, the police wanted to find Jeff's 1984 two-door silver Ford Mustang. According to reports from Gurney Police back in 1989, patrolmen found Jeff's car on the Daffy Duck Row shortly after 2.30 p.m. An hour later, two teens from Lakeville who'd been with Jeff and Darla in the park were leaving to get in their own car, and the officers stopped them. These two teens were Lynette Greer and Mark Berger. Lynette and Mark will become pretty important witnesses in this case, but I'll get more into why in the next episode. For now, all you really need to know is that when Lynette and Mark were stopped at Great America, police asked them where Jeff and Darla were. They told the officers that they weren't sure, but gave the cops a description of what Darla and Jeff were wearing. Around 4.15, 45 minutes after stopping Lynette and Mark, Security guards and Gurney police found Jeff and Darla in a gift shop. The couple was with a bunch of other teens who'd attended prom together the night before. Gurney police rounded up the teens and took all of them to the police station for questioning. But they kept Darla and Jeff in a security office at the theme park. St. Joseph County Police Detective John Bowditch specifically asked Gurney police to detain Jeff and Darla in isolation and not to interview them. Authorities in Illinois were told to get statements from all of the other teens, but leave Jeff and Darla alone until John arrived. John and his colleague Jerry Rutkowski also requested that Jeff and Darla's vehicles be impounded and sealed off until they arrived. Between 4.15 and 4.30, Jeff asked Gurney police three separate times what was going on and if he was in some kind of trouble. 
The officers didn't speak to him, and they definitely didn't tell him that his father, stepmother, and two stepsisters had been murdered. Just after 4.30, Gurney officers finally decided to break the news to Jeff. According to police reports, they told Jeff that only Bob and Don were murdered. They intentionally left out the fact that Janelle and Jolene were dead, too. The Gurney officer wrote in his report that he withheld that information because St. Joseph County had not positively identified the little girls yet. The report states that when Jeff heard the news of Bob and Don's deaths, he quietly sobbed in his seat, and Darla tried to console him. A few minutes later, Gurney police transported Jeff and Darla from the amusement park security office to the actual police department. During the car ride, Jeff continued to ask Gurney police officers what exactly had happened to his parents and how they were murdered. They wouldn't tell him anything. Jeff continued to pepper them with questions and wanted to know how his sister Jackie would be notified. He told them that she would need someone to go get her at Huntington College and bring her back to Lakeville. He also asked if Bob was really dead. All questions I think maybe anyone would be asking if you just heard your parents were murdered. When Jeff and Darla were finally at the Gurney police station, he asked to call his maternal grandparents, Mary and Jack Armstrong. These were his biological mom, Joy's parents, but police told him no. Hours went by, and Jeff and Darla just sat in silence. Around 8.30 p.m., John Bodich and Jerry Rakowski arrived from Indiana. They immediately took some statements from a few other teens that were in the park, then went to check out Jeff and Darla's cars. Police reports state that John and Jerry went through both vehicles, but did not find anything of any evidentiary value. I emphasize that because it's going to be very, very important a little later on in this case. Around 9 o'clock, the detectives spoke separately with Darla and Jeff for two and a half hours. By 11.30 p.m., John, Jerry, Jeff, and Darla were leaving Illinois and headed back to Indiana. At no point the entire day and night were Jeff or Darla ever in custody or under arrest. They could have walked out of the Gurney police station at any point, but according to reports, they never asked to leave. John and Jerry didn't get back to Lakeville with Jeff and Darla until around 2 o'clock in the morning, so technically the next day, May 1st. At that point, they allowed Darla to speak with her parents, who told her to cooperate with police. She was released shortly thereafter. Jeff, on the other hand, was not released. By 4 o'clock in the morning, his grandparents, the Armstrongs, had arrived from Kentucky and signed guardian consent forms, allowing John Bowditch to officially interview Jeff. I just want to hear his story, where he was, um, what he might have saw before he left. You have somebody that's not of age, you, you have to have a parent or guardian there. Well, we had grandparents there, and they were, they were good people. They, wanted, they would like to know what happened, too. You know, but if you were a suspect in a case and you got mom and dad on this side or grandma and grandpa on this side, I mean, that's, you might as well have your baby blanket on you because, you know, you're protected. That's why the questions that I did ask him, it was more of a fact-finding thing for me just to see how he reacted and, and how he answered the questions. And according to John, Jeff had a lot to explain. All right, so there we were. 
cruising through the new open-air zoo when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. Robert Jeffrey Pelley. And your date of birth? 12-10-71. St. Joseph County Police Detective John Vodich conducted the first and only videotaped law enforcement interview with Jeff Pelley. John wanted to hear from Jeff himself about his relationship with Bob, Don, and the rest of the blended Pelly family. At this point, authorities had finally informed Jeff that his stepsisters, Janelle and Jolene, were the other two victims found inside the parsonage. John used the interview as a way to figure out if Jeff had murdered his family. At that point in time, Jeff was law enforcement's prime suspect. At the beginning of the hour-and-a-half-long conversation, John didn't start with a direct line of questioning. He asked Jeff simple stuff, like who he'd seen in the last 24 hours, what he'd done Saturday all day and right before prom, and Jeff answered. I went to work at 5 o'clock that morning, and I got off at 11. My dad picked me up about 10 after, quarter after. He's running a little bit late. Me and Dad and Janelle and Jolene ate lunch right about 12, 12.30. We ate together. We ate lunch. Me and Janelle and Jolene washed my car. That's your sisters? Two stepsisters, my two youngest stepsisters. And then we came inside and ate lunch with Dad. And then Dad left and he went visiting. He didn't come back till almost 4 o'clock. I think he went to uh, Johnny House and the Dillers. I'm not sure of his name. I watched the baseball game on TV for a little bit between Dodgers and Cardinals. That part, what Jeff just said, is true. I checked. From 12.30 until 3.45 p.m. on Saturday, April 29, 1989, the St. Louis Cardinals did play the L.A. Dodgers, and the Cardinals won. Jeff also volunteered accurate information about where Dawn had been all day on Saturday. She had a Girl Scout meeting that day. She left about 9.30, I believe. According to Jeff, Dawn returned to the parsonage around 3.30, shortly before Bob did. I have the log sheet from Dawn's Girl Scout meeting and can confirm that it took place in Plymouth, Indiana, about a 20-minute drive from the Pelly's home, and it started at 9.30 a.m. and ended around 2.45 p.m. According to the sign-in sheet and several women who attended, everyone signed out around 2.45 p.m., but Dawn and a few other women lingered to talk. Witnesses stated Dawn left around 3 p.m., which means she would have gotten home, not making any stops, around 3.20 or 3.30. By 4.30 p.m., it's undisputed that Jeff, Bob, Dawn, Janelle, and Jolene were all together at the parsonage. This is confirmed by eyewitness statements police took from some of Jeff's high school friends. These people showed up at the parsonage between 4.30 and 5 o'clock. The group of teens was wearing their prom dresses and tuxedos, and they came by to visit with their pastor and have him take their pictures. Bob was an amateur photographer and owned a nice 35mm camera. 
that's the one I told you about that was eventually seized as evidence. Here's Jeff remembering that moment in 1989. Tim Oldenburg came over with David Shoemaker because uh, I used to date Kim Oldenburg, and my dad and her are real good friends. My dad wanted to see her in her dress. Her mom and her brother and her brother's friend were with them. And then Matt Miller stopped by while they were there. He was just there for one minute, and he had to run back out because he forgot the flowers for his date, so he had to go back home. <laughs> they left about quarter till, I suppose, and I must have left four or five minutes after them. I put my tux in the car and put my radio in the car, and I left right after they did. Jeff explained in his interview that the plan on Saturday was to meet Darla at Lynette Greer's house across town. They were going to get ready there and take photos before heading to dinner and eventually the dance. We were going to dinner at the Emporium. We had dinner reservations for 6.30. I knew I'd need clothes for after prom, and I was spending the night at a friend's house, so I knew I'd need clothes for that. So I packed all that and got the car ready to go. Jeff claimed that he left the parsonage between 4.50 and 5 o'clock. On his way to Lynette's, he stopped by a convenience store to fix something on his car. I had to stop along the way because uh, I'd been fooling with the idle on the car. It wasn't idling right, but the car was idling too high. When I tried to stop, it just it didn't want to stop right. John Bowditch used Jeff's answer about his car problems as a springboard to push Jeff harder on one very important point. Why was Jeff even driving his Mustang to begin with? Wasn't he grounded? Why had he and his car been at Great America at all? We had found out that Bob had told numerous people down there, church people, elders, that, uh, you know, he's not going. He's in trouble. He's not going anywhere. He took the insurance off the car. He disabled the car somehow. Jeff had an answer. Bob had simply changed his mind at the last minute. At first, he kept saying no, and then he finally agreed to let me go. He told me Wednesday and Thursday that there was a good chance that he let me go, and then he told me Friday for sure that I could. And when did you let all your friends know that? I, I talked to Darla Wednesday night, because usually when my dad starts deciding something, as long as you're, you keep up what you're doing, keep being really good and stuff, then he'll go through with it. So I let her know that I'd probably be able to go, that there was a really good chance that I could, and we redid the dinner reservations and stuff. Jeff saying that he talked to Darla a few days before prom on Wednesday night is accurate. Phone records from the parsonage show that someone used the Pelly's line to call Darla's residence on Wednesday, April 26th, and the conversation lasted for over an hour. That seems like a high school lovesick teenager weeknight call to me. But the problem for John Bowditch and other St. Joseph County investigators was that it just seemed like Jeff had a convenient answer for everything. They knew Bob and Jeff had been having a lot of disagreements prior to the murders. Mark Center, the Indiana State Trooper helping John Bowditch investigate the crime, said that before the murder, Bob had actually asked him to help straighten out Jeff's bad behavior. Jeff was involved with, he broke into a home of a friend's and uh, stole some money and used that money to go to Florida for spring break, you know. so. Bob called me and he said, Mark, I need a favor. I, um, my son's done this and, and I need you to, to intervene in this and take a case report. And so I did. And uh, we interviewed uh, Jeff uh, and Bob. Was in, were interviewed um, in the pews of, of the sanctuary of the church, believe it or not. About the burglary, he admitted to it. 
I sent my case to prosecutor's office or would have gone to juvenile probation. And um, that was it. Uh, that was probably, I don't have an exact date, but I would say early March, mid-March. So uh, six weeks before the actual murders. Court records show that Jeff never faced any charges or penalties for that burglary because he confessed to it, and the victim, a friend of Jeff's named John Herzeg, worked out a deal with Jeff. After my dad turned me in and stuff, I, I talked to John and I told him what, what had happened and everything. And John said, no problem. He said, as long as you can give me my CDs back, I'm not worried about it. And he told me even, he said, if you just get half on back, he said, I'm not worried about it. John wasn't making a big deal over it. He, he said he thought it was a true fin just because I admitted it to him and he forgave me and everything. Jeff speaking openly in his interview with police about his thievery and juvenile delinquency wasn't surprising. Jackie Pelly, Jeff's younger biological sister, as well as many other people in the Lakeville community, knew about Jeff's bad behaviors and the fact that he'd stolen from John Hersek. She remembers that the week leading up to prom, Bob and Jeff were in the midst of working out an appropriate punishment. Dad would ground you, and he knew that he overreacted. And so he, he was the first one to say, if I ground you for the rest of your life or whatever, wait until we both calm down. If you feel like it was unfair, then come back and we'll negotiate until we get to something that we both agree on. And so from whenever it was that Jeff got grounded until up to prom week, I knew they were negotiating. That's just the way things worked in our house. Jackie says that nothing was escalating between father and son leading into prom weekend. In fact, according to Jackie, Jeff was more independent than anyone knew. It's frustrating because everybody has this opinion of Jeff being rebellious and blah, blah, blah. Jeff was done with school. Jeff could have left and gone to Florida and stayed if he wanted to, or he could have moved to Kentucky with my grandparents or something. There was nothing keeping him there. He did not have to go to school every day, even for attendance. He was done. He was just waiting for graduation. But Mark Center and John Bowditch felt positive that Jeff and Bob's relationship wasn't on the mend. They believed the 17-year-old was lying about everything. They believed he was allowed to go to the prom dance, but nothing else. They had a gut feeling that Jeff was the only person who had motive to want to see Bob, Don, and anyone else who got in his way dead. John believed Jeff's motive was anger, anger towards his stepmother. I didn't accept her. It wasn't that I didn't like her. When they got married, they wanted us to start calling Don mom and stuff. And it was really hard to accept. Anger towards his father. My dad kind of went through a personality change when he remarried. He wasn't the same father that I'd always grown up with. And anger about being banned from driving himself and his girlfriend to prom. At one part, I asked him, you know, do you know what happened to your parents? Did you do it? No, I did not. No, I didn't. You know? I, me and my father didn't get along sometimes. Sometimes I'd be really upset with him. But we always worked things out. Dad and I did have some problems, but, you know, we always worked them out. Well, yeah, okay, that sounds good, Jeff, but I know that's not true. The reason John Bowditch didn't believe Jeff is because an overwhelming mountain of circumstantial evidence was building. 
and interview after interview with witnesses was narrowing down a timeline that convinced the police Jeff, and only Jeff, he thought he was smarter than everybody, was behind the trigger that killed his family. I took a close look at this timeline and uncovered not everything lines up. Listen to episode six, No Clues to Waste, right now. Hey listeners, it's me, Delia D'Ambra. And in the newest season of my investigative series, Counterclock, I'll take you to my home state of North Carolina and to a tiny rural town called Williamston, where I investigate a suspicious death and the web of secrets it exposed. Listen to this season of Counterclock releasing weekly, May 10th through June 14th, wherever you get your podcasts. Or binge the entire season now on the SiriusXM app or Crime Junkie Fan Club app.